Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Michelle Leslie. And I'm Amy Spreeman. Welcome to part two of our Twisted Scriptures series. Now, last week we covered Psalm 105.15 and First Chronicles 16.22, which both say, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. And then we also talked about John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice. And First uh, Timothy 2.12, a personal favorite of both of ours, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Uh, we also talked about John fourteen twelve, greater works than these he will do. And finally, we talked about John 14, verse 13 and 14 that says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So these are some passages that people often, you know, rip out of context to teach extra biblical revelation or egalitarianism, new apostolic reformation heresy, and other false doctrines. But we put them all back in context to explain what scripture really teaches. So uh, do be sure to go back and give part one a listen if you have not already. And tonight we're going to straighten out even more twisted scriptures for you. We are, and goodness knows how long we'll be at this. You know, Amy, as we've we've been doing sh- uh, show prep for these episodes, more and more verses that people love to mangle just keep coming to my mind. So I just keep adding them to the list so we could be at this for a while. <laughs> But you know something else, and I think I mentioned this last week, as I've studied these verses to prepare for the show, I've discovered how much richer and more beautiful and more amazing they are when they're rightly handled in their proper context than when they're twisted to fit man's sinful agenda. I mean, you just can't improve on God's word. Now, that is so true. And as we mentioned last week, whenever we approach Scripture, we have a responsibility to follow the instruction of 2 Timothy 2.15. Let me read that for you. It says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So we're going to do that tonight, and we encourage you to get out your Bible and follow along with us. Well, let's dive in, shall we? Uh, the first twisted scripture for tonight is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not. We all know this one, right? Those uh, two little words taken from the Sermon on the Mount are pretty powerful and are often used by people who are not followers of Christ. And sadly, uh, they're used also by many who are professing believers. Here's what the first five verses of Matthew chapter 7 say. And uh, in in my uh, Bible, uh, I've got a subtitle that says, Judging Others. So, chapter 7, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So those were uh, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7 there. And uh, these verses are telling us that we, you know, clearly are never to judge one another, right? 
Well, you would think so. In our modern society of, hey, 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 don't you judge me. Who are you to judge? You know, even professing Christians have made it seem like it's really sinful to judge another human being for his or her behavior or words. But this is just not true. You know, Matthew 7 is widely misunderstood. We are to judge. We can judge between right and wrong, between good fruit and bad fruit, uh, between wise and unwise actions or thoughts. That is part of our discernment. And sometimes we are to speak up and pronounce judgment. And I want to be clear here that we're not really supposed to be judging another's salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. That's God's job. But if we do see a brother or a sister who is heading down a wrong path, and if we don't speak up and help them, we are in a sense, like it's like giving a drunk person the keys to the car. Really, it's it's not good. And it's we're responsible for that. And the reality is, People stop reading chapter 7 right after verse 5. They, they just think that that's all it is. It's all judgment is wrong unless it's done by God himself. And it is true that Jesus takes judgment very, very seriously. Ladies, he is the righteous judge who is full of grace and truth and who does not judge by appearances, but judges with right judgment. And he wants us to judge with right judgment also. And what that means, uh, it, it really means being careful in how you judge. It's about the how. And the standard you use in judging is the standard by which you're going to be judged. So this is what Jesus said, and he was directing this lesson to his believers, his followers, and he shows them the ultimate hypocrisy. He says, why do you worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you even think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? And that, he is saying, is the self-centered pride that is the sin. So how are we to judge then? Well, it comes down to the why. Why do we need to judge? Uh, why are we doing this? Uh, you know, the purpose of judging someone else's weakness or sin is supposed to be to help him or her walk in freedom. But we can't do that unless we remember that we once were in that same bondage, right? We've been slaves to sin. Now listen to what 1 Corinthians 5.12 says. Paul is writing to a church of people who are really dealing with a, a horrible sin issue. It was like a case of incest. And as he's helping them manage the situation, he was warning them about their own pride. I'm going to back it up a little bit to verse Six. Again, this is 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world, but I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge the outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. 
So, ladies, again, it comes down to having a position not of pride, but of humility. Therefore, when we judge and Scripture instructs Christians to judge at times, we must take great care that our judgment is like Christ's and is always charitable. Our pride makes us criticize and judge others so that we feel better about ourselves, right? And that's not, you know, what we're supposed to do. That is what the Pharisees did. Jesus requires true followers to apply his teachings first to themselves and then to others. I like how it says in, in John seven twenty four, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. So practically, what does that look like? Well, it looks like we first pray with a heart for his sheep. That's what, that's the heart we need to have. If we truly love one another like we're supposed to, our thoughts are going to immediately Immediately jump to redemption. Instead of pointing fingers, we should be saying, uh, here, sister, let me help you with that, right? <laughs> we we need to be doing that. Uh, Michelle, what do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think I finally found something that I disagree with you about. Ah, what's that? Well, you were very generous to say that people stop reading Matthew 7 after verse 5. And I just have to say, I think they stop reading after verse 1, <laughs> if they read it at all. <laughs> It's very generous of you to to uh, to um, give them credit for reading through verse five. So I I, I do agree with your generosity. There. Well, have you ever seen that <laughs> but, meme where where it's a, a picture of verse uh, chapter seven there, and uh, everything is is uh, crossed out and yeah. scratched out except for <laughs> "Thou shalt not judge." <laughs> so that's right. It's it's just amazing to me that people will just harp on on verse one yeah. there and not go down there to verses. Oh, 15 through like 23, I think, where Jesus says, you know, you will judge them, you will know them by their fruits, you know, are figs gathered from thistles or grapes from thorn bushes or whatever? Well, you have to make a judgment to know if something is a thorn bush or a fig or a thistle or whatever. Exactly. You know, we, we make righteous judgments all the time. And the way that we make righteous judgments is by God's word. You know, a lot of people who harp on this don't judge thing, they think we're just judging people by our own opinions. And if we are doing that, we should not be. That's not right. What we are to do is use God's word as our measuring stick. That's that's kind of what it's saying in in uh, verses two and and so on, that we are to judge with right judgment, the right judgment of Scripture. So, very good. I'm glad we got that one straightened <laughs> <Yes>. out. <laughs> okay, let's move on to our next popularly twisted scripture, Galatians three twenty eight. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 is the rallying cry for egalitarians. They're the ones that, um, you know, they have sort of an unbiblical view of the role of women and men in the church and in the home. They like to rip this verse completely out of its context and say, see, you're all one in Christ Jesus. That means there's no difference in women's roles and men's roles in the home and in the church because we're all equal. Women don't have to submit to their husbands and women can do anything in the church that men can do. But is that what that verse says? Does it say we're all equal? Well, no, it says we're all one. Does it say anything about our roles or positions in the church and in the home? No, it says we're all one in Christ Jesus. 
in Christ Jesus does not equal in the home or in the church. Those are three separate things. And that should be your first clue right there. With a lot of verses, you can tell they're being twisted even before you look them up in context. If you'll just listen to, to the difference between what the verse actually says and what the twister of the verse says it means. Really, this scripture is so easily untwisted just by reading all of chapter three of Galatians. So I would encourage all of our listeners to do that, maybe even hit pause and do it right now, and you'll you'll clearly see what I'm about to tell you. So let's untwist this scripture by first looking at what I call the macro context, the big picture. The book of Galatians was breathed out by the Holy Spirit through the pen of Paul to the churches at Galatia to combat the false doctrine of the Judaizers who taught that the Gentiles must first become Jews in order, in other words, you know, be circumcised, follow the Mosaic law and all that stuff. But they had to do that first before they could become Christians. So Paul's letter was written to remind the Galatians and us that we are justified, which means saved and made right with God, through repentance and faith in Christ, not by keeping the law. And Galatians 3 is a perfect showcase for Paul's theme of justification by faith. So wait a second, what's all this talk about the law and faith and salvation and stuff like that? Isn't this a passage about women being equal to men and that they can serve in any capacity or office in the church that men can? Well, no, it's not. That's really where the wheels fall off the egalitarian argument. The entirety of Galatians 3 is about salvation by faith instead of works. It says nothing about women serving in the same roles in the church as men or in the home either. It says nothing about that. Nothing. Nada. Zilch. Zip. Nothing. Um, it, you know what it tells us is it tells us something much better than that, something far more precious to the women of that time and to us than we actually realize. Let's look at verse 28 in its immediate context. We're going to start with verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You hear what that's actually saying? It's saying anyone can come to Christ in repentance and faith. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, all are welcome. No one is more important than anyone else. We're all equally saved, equally loved, equally forgiven of our sin, equally precious in God's eyes. But equality in salvation does not translate to equality in church roles. For example, a king and a pauper might have worshipped side by side in the Galatian church. But when it came to the role of giving, the church would not have expected the same offering from the pauper as from the king. This didn't make the king more important than the pauper. It just gave him a different area of responsibility because of who he was. Likewise, men and women are equally saved and forgiven in God's eyes, but still fulfill different roles in the body of Christ because of who they are. What say you, Amy? 
Well, I, I love how you put that. And I, I love the macro examples, uh, because when you pull out and you see the verses in context, you, you understand what it is that uh, we're really talking about here. I, I would just uh, I, I was just observing that we're seeing such a huge uptick, it seems, in uh, feminism within the church. And they will definitely point to this verse to support their views. But remember that the goal of feminism has always been to blur not only the roles of men and women, but gender lines, which is also not new, but with the LGBTQ, especially the T movement, that is exactly where we are in the world today. And uh, Michelle, sadly, in the church, we're seeing more and more of an acceptance of those blurred lines in sexuality and roles, all in the name of inclusivity. And remember, ladies, that God's word is exclusive, as in no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a very narrow path, but not a very uh, popular message in the world today, is it? Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the next uh, scripture, which often gets twisted. And that is one we need to straighten out here. Malachi 3.8, which says this, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need." Well, that's the verse in Malachi, and I, I think uh, many of us have heard that verse to mean something else. Tithe simply means tenth or ten percent. Uh, many Christians today believe that we are to tithe ten percent of our earnings to the church, and that if we do this, if we test God in this, he will then bless us, presumably in blessings that would fill up our need uh, for, I guess, food or wealth or whatever. But the tithe is actually an Old Testament practice for Israel. And they were to tithe the first fruits of everything. Now, some churches today have taken the 10% figure from the Old Testament tithe and applied it as kind of a recommended minimum for Christians in their giving today. And one of the questions, it's kind of funny, I've heard this so many times before, Michelle, people often ask their church leaders, they'll say something like, well, should I be tithing on my gross income or my net income? Well, actually, the tithe in the Old Testament never meant your paycheck. We can read about the tithe in Leviticus, in Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then um, I've got a passage here in Second Chronicles chapter 31 I'm going to read. I find this really interesting. It says this, And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the firstfruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and all the produce of the field. And they brought it in abundantly, the tithe of everything. And the people of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of cattle and sheep and the tithe of dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God and laid them in heaps. In the third month, they began to pile up the heaps and finished them in the seventh month. When Hezekiah and the princes came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and the people Israel. And Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites about the heaps. Azariah, the chief priest, who was uh, of the house of Zadok, answered him, 
since they began bringing the contributions into the house of the Lord, we have eaten and have had enough and plenty left, for the Lord has blessed his people so that we have this large amount left. Okay, so that's the verse. And why don't we give a tenth of our possessions to the church, you may be wondering, like our, our grain or our cows or wine or oil or honey. Well, most of us don't have cows and grain that we earn. So you might naturally think that the, in the modern times that we need to give a tenth of our, our salaries or our household income. I know some churches that who do keep track. They actually know what their uh, congregants uh, make, and they actually come after people with uh, large bills, billing statements, uh, whose giving does not match what uh, the people say they earn. So, and and that's really sad. You know, Jesus in his death and resurrection fulfilled the Old Testament law, so that the requirement of giving a tenth doesn't really apply today to New Testament Christians, which we are. You know, is is tithing mentioned in the Gospels? Yes, it is actually by Jesus, but not as a command. He mentioned it as he was scolding the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. So let's read about that in Matthew 23. It says this, Jesus talking here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean." And you know, ladies, after Jesus' resurrection, we don't see Christians being commanded to tithe, but we do see a lot about the importance of giving. Now, these are two different things, giving and tithing. Tithing is from the law, and giving is really an offering from the heart. We are to give cheerfully. Second Corinthians 9-7 says, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The New Testament talks about the importance and benefits of giving as we are able, uh, depending on the ability of the Christian and the needs of the body of Christ. And we should do that purely because of you know what we've been given by God and with an attitude of worship to him and service to the body of Christ. Listen, ladies, the needs of your own church are great, whether or not you know it, uh, whether your church is large or small, there are probably widows in your church and people living below the poverty line. You know, there are kids who may not get enough to eat, maybe not eat much at all on weekends because their families depend on the free or reduced meals at school during the week. We don't always see or hear about those families who are struggling or a parent who has lost a job. And you also have to know (laughs) that the staff at your church probably isn't able to make ends meet on what the church is able to pay in a salary. And maybe it's your family who needs your support, uh, uh, support of the church. And that's why it's so important to be a part of the body of Christ in your local church fellowship, not only uh, to have your spiritual needs met through solid preaching and teaching, but to care for and love one another. And that means helping each other through any kind of hardship that comes along. Anything to add, Michelle? I just think that was great teaching, Amy, that you you hit the nail right on the head. You know, a lot of people 
will go to that. I've even heard pastors go to that Matthew 23 passage and say, see, Jesus taught tithing, you know, just like you said, oh, because, yeah. you know, and he and they think this is tithing for the New Testament church. But we have to remember the context of Matthew 23. It's not just that he was scolding the Pharisees, but Jesus lived his entire life. And the Pharisees at that point were also under Jewish law. They were still yes. under the old covenant. So of course the Pharisees were supposed to be tithing. Of course they should have done this without neglecting the other things. But we are not under Old Testament law. And so that does not apply to us. Um, I also wanted to suggest that, you know, if you want to go to an Old Testament passage that talks about giving the way we're supposed to give in the New Testament, go to Exodus 30. And read the part where it's talking about the people bringing contributions uh, for the building of, of the tent of meeting. You know, it says, like, just for example, verse 21 of Exodus 35 says, They came everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting. And blah, blah, blah. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart brought this, that, and the other. And then I'm skipping down to verse 29 here. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. And it talks about it talks about that in chapter 35. And then later it talks about how uh, the people who were over the the building of, of the tent of meeting and everything had to come to Moses and say, tell the people to stop bringing stuff. They're bringing too much stuff. Don't <laughs> tell them to quit bringing stuff. And so that's that is the kind of spirit that we should have with giving. We should we should be generous and wanting to help and and not, um, you know, just trying to crunch the numbers necessarily and and make sure we're we're giving on the net or the gross or the, you know a certain percentage or whatever. We are to be generous in our giving because Christ has been so generous with us. So so really, you know, if you want if you want to go to an Old Testament passage that tells us how how we are to give in the New Testament, I can't recommend anything more highly than Exodus 35 and, and read about Excellent. that there. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a really beautiful passage about giving. Okay, well, our next twisted scripture is going to be da, 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 everybody's favorite, Jeremiah 29, 11. <laughs> you know, it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny that that verse, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Amy, that verse used to be a lot more popular than it is now. I mean, it's still out there, but it's not just on every coffee mug now. <laughs> they, we've moved on to other coffee yeah. mug verses. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know in my younger years, that was a big one for me as well. Right. And if you're not familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, the way it's twisted is sort of a prosperity gospel twist. God has big, awesome plans for your life for a bright and shiny future. You know, everything's going to turn out the way you want it to. Nothing's going to go wrong. So, you know, right off the bat, if you give this idea like, any thought whatsoever, you're probably wondering about a couple of things. First, you're probably wondering, okay, so if this is God's promise to me, what about my infertility? What about the fact that my husband left me? What about the rent that's due and we don't have the money to pay it? Did God break his promise to me? 
So that's probably the first thing you're wondering. And if you know your Bible a little, the second thing you're probably wondering is, how on earth does this promise of a shiny future fit with all the New Testament passages about suffering and persecution for Christians? Does the Bible contradict itself on this? You see the pain and the problems that twisting scripture can cause and and the way it undermines the character of God and the trustworthiness of his word. But the good news is, when we rightly handle this scripture in context, we can have the reassurance and peace, no doubt, that God does keep his promises to us and that his word never contradicts itself. If you've ever encountered this particular scripture twisting, your backup camera should beep a couple of times right away, okay? First, this verse is in the Old Testament. So here's a good rule of thumb to remember if you're looking at an Old Testament verse as a Christian. If you if you are doing that, if you're looking at the Old Testament, you're a Christian, you're wondering if something applies to you or not, just remember, this is the Old Testament. I'm probably reading somebody else's mail. Okay, so second, notice the word you in this verse. I know the plans I have for you. Who is you in this verse? Well, you is a pronoun. And that means that in order to understand who you is, you have to find the antecedent. The antecedent identifies who the pronoun refers to. Like if I said, I was talking to Bob the other day and I told him, you need to buy me a Coke. So who is you in that sentence? Well, it's Bob. Bob is the antecedent. So look how easy God makes this one for us. You really don't even have to know anything about the book of Jeremiah as a whole to know who this verse was written to. So we're going to look at Jeremiah 29, verse 1. And here's what it says. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken from ex- into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so who is you in verse 11? Well, it's all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, 21st century Christian, are you one of the people? The people that Nebuchadnezzar has taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon? No? Okay, well, this isn't written to you. It's not God's promise to you. You're reading somebody else's mail. So chapter 29, verses 1 through 4, tells us who this letter is written to and how it got to them. Verses 5 through 9 is basically God's instructions to them about how they're to live while they're in exile. And then let's look at verse 11 in its immediate context. I'm going to read verses 10 through 14. Here we go. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, the Lord is comforting his people even as he's punishing their sin. I will not abandon you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. After 70 years, I'm going to bring you back and give you a fresh start. So how does that apply to us as Christians? 
Well, not as a fake prosperity prognostication, but a much more profound and helpful truth. God keeps his promises. God promised Israel for hundreds of years that if they didn't stop sinning, he was going to discipline them. And he kept that promise. He promised the discipline would only last 70 years, and he kept that promise. He promised to be with his people even while they were in exile, and he kept that promise. God is a God who keeps his promises. Does God have plans for us as Christians? Yep. Are those plans for welfare and not evil to give us a future and a hope? Yes. And what is that plan? That plan is the ups and downs of life now, including suffering and persecution, and an eternity with Christ later. Heaven is when we realize his plan of welfare, not evil. It's our future and our hope. And there are verses that teach us that, but not this one. Amy, anything you'd like to add? (laughs) Well, I just really appreciate that teaching too, Michelle. And your point about um, twisting scripture and how it just does so much damage and causes so much pain is just completely right on. Uh, you know, what if God's plan for me personally is not prosperity or living my best life now, but to suffer and die for my faith? It's exactly as you said. The persecuted church around the world is seeing um, suffering. Just extreme. I mean, if you if you read Voice of the Martyrs, uh, it's uh, suffering in ways we often don't imagine or want to think about. But God's promise is, like you said, to never leave us or forsake us, and that promise is eternal. And uh, our rewards are plentiful when we are at last with Him. So great hope. I really really appreciate that teaching. Alrighty. Here is our next twisted scripture, Matthew 18. Uh, now, this is the church uh, discipline verse that people often cite whenever you are exercising discernment by holding someone's teaching up to the light of scripture. For instance, when Michelle and I warn our readers and listeners about you know certain teachers or book authors or conference speakers, we're often met with, Well, did you actually talk to that teacher first before exposing him or her publicly? And what they're doing is they're talking about Matthew 18, the one place in the Bible where Jesus is telling his followers how to handle a brother or sister who is in sin. So let's read that verse, Matthew 18, starting at 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Now, Jesus is giving his disciples these four steps here that build toward well, the removal of a believer from the fellowship. Go to your brother alone first, then take one or two others, go to your church, and as a final step, the church decides that this person is no longer to be a part of this church. What does this look like in real life today? Well, let's go back to the passage. That's a great place to start, right? The first part is pretty easy to discern. If your brother... Okay, simply put, that just means this is your brother or sister in Christ who has sinned against 
you. It applies to a sin between two individual Christians. So if a sister sins against me, I am to go alone to her and we talk about it. And if she continues to sin against me, then what? Well, the verse says it. It says, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Well, what witnesses is is Jesus talking about? These are witnesses in your church fellowship. Why is that the case? Because this whole verse and the steps Jesus outlines is all about church discipline. And so the witnesses you bring along with you might be a deacon or a Bible study leader or someone who is wise, you know, not a new believer. Uh, We want to bring along someone who can help discern and restore this person so that she isn't continuing down her path of sin. So what happens if she still won't listen and continues to sin against you? Well, Now this is getting really serious. Then we take it before the church leadership, the elders or a pastor. Why do we do this? Because if someone is sinning against you or hurting another member or bringing sin into the church in any way, guess what? We all suffer together. That And that sin that needs to be confronted right away and dealt with. She's sinning not only against you, but every other member of your church because uh, this he or she is hurting one of the body parts. This isn't really about conflict resolution. This is discipline for a sin that is serious enough to possibly remove a member from fellowship if it's not addressed. So let's go back and see how people are misusing this concept. Like I kind of mentioned before, when Michelle or I are warning about a false teacher, let's say it's Beth Moore or Kenneth Copeland, we do this because we don't want you to be deceived. We love you, and we know how harmful these two teachers in particular are. And if this is news to you, uh, we will have links in our show notes so that you can go and research their teachings. But what we hope we don't hear is you saying, well, did you go to Beth Moore or Kenneth Copeland in person before exposing them as false teachers? No, we didn't, because Beth Moore doesn't go to my church. She doesn't go to your church either, and neither does Kenneth Copeland. So I can't go to them, first of all, because their bodyguards and administrative assistants would never allow minions like us to call them up or knock on their door. And I know, as as heinous as their false teaching is, they haven't really sinned against me personally. And can you just imagine if we were actually to apply Matthew 18 to them? Uh, um, Beth Moore, excuse me, you're not listening to me, so I brought some friends from my church along as witnesses. What's that, Beth? You aren't listening to me still? Well, then you're going to have to come to my church and meet with my elders. How does next Tuesday evening work for you? Yeah, no, that would be ridiculous to think that Matthew 18 applies in the case of exposing false teachers. False teachers, by the way, who are teaching deceptive things in the public arena. They're not sinning against you personally. This is the public arena. Their books, their conference videos, their websites, their sermon podcasts, and all their other material is out there in the public realm, deceiving hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And anything consumable within the public domain is fair game for any Christian to discern between right and wrong, biblical and unbiblical, and for any Christian to warn their brothers and sisters about those voracious wolves in sheep's clothing. Michelle, any thoughts to share on that? (laughs) Well, we did an entire episode a while back on uh, people misusing Matthew 18 this way, so we will certainly put a link in the show notes to 
to that for you. And, um, you know, you made raised a very good point about, you know, we can't discipline uh, or we can't participate in church discipline against Beth Moore, or Kenneth Copeland or anybody like that because we don't go to their church. And I just wanted to say, if Beth Moore does go to your church or if Kenneth Copeland does go to your church, please find a new church <laughs> yes. right away. And and we can help you do that if you need help doing that. So otherwise, I think, Amy, you covered it completely. And and uh, I, I don't really have anything else to add. So All right. Our final uh, twisted scripture for tonight is going to be Psalm 37, 4. That's out of my favorite Psalm, Psalm 37. So verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, this one is twisted and misunderstood similarly to John 14, 13 through 14. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, which we covered last week. So you might want to go back and listen to part one of this of the twisted scriptures series if you haven't already. So delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This verse does not mean that if you like Jesus or if you pray a lot or go to church a lot or read your Bible a lot, he will give you whatever you want because you're doing those actions. When you take that perspective and you do those things in order to get what you want, that's not delighting yourself in the Lord. That's delighting yourself in the desires of your own heart. And if you have this attitude of, I'm going to manipulate God with my behavior into giving me what I want, then the desires of your heart that you're delighting in are almost certainly fleshly. So I think the key here is to understand what delighting yourself in the Lord means according to scripture. So what does that mean? Well, it's loving the Lord. It's obeying him because you love him. It's finding your joy and your contentment in worshiping and serving him. It's it's diving down deeper and deeper into Christ and loving every minute of it. You know, we're doing a, a study of Psalm 119 over in, on my blog right now. And if you really want to see a picture of a person who delights himself in the Lord, give Psalm 119. 19, a good study. I mean, that psalmist is just, for lack of a better word, obsessed in in a biblically healthy way with God, with God's word, with striving for holiness and obedience. He he is a great example of someone who delights himself in the Lord, the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119. And then a couple of other verses that help us understand what it means to delight ourselves in the Lord. Psalm 40, verse 14, just a few pages over from Psalm 37. Psalm 40, 14 says, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. And then one of the cross references to Psalm 37, 4, Matthew 6, 33, is really helpful in shedding more light on what Psalm 37, 4 means. Scripture interprets scripture, and we understand less clear passages in light of clearer passages. So if you're dealing with a twisted scripture, it's always good to look at the cross references. So Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And of course, the immediate context of verse 4 helps us understand delighting ourselves in the Lord a, a little bit better, too. So let's read Psalm 37, verses 3 through 5. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. So trusting in the Lord, 
obeying him, cultivating faithfulness in your life, committing your way to the Lord. All of these things are components of delighting yourself in the Lord. And if you'll read all of Psalm 37, you'll learn even more about what's involved in delighting yourself in the Lord. So why will God give us the desires of our hearts when we delight ourselves in him? Well, because as we delight ourselves more and more in him, he conforms us more and more to the image of Christ. And that means the desires of our hearts will increasingly align with the desires of God's heart. Think about it. As a born again disciple of Christ who delights herself in the Lord, when you really get right down to brass tacks, what is the ultimate desire of your heart? What do you really want more than anything else? You want whatever God wants in any given situation about everything, right? Because you know that he knows what's best and that if he gets his way, and he always does, that's going to be best for you and the situation and everybody involved. So when you delight yourself in the Lord, he not only gives you what your heart desires because it's in line with what he desires, but he also gives you the desires of your heart in the sense that he puts into your heart the desires that he wants you to have. He provides you with God glorifying desires. Amy, any final thoughts on that one? So beautifully put. I can understand why that verse is, uh, you know, and the surrounding texts are your favorite. And I think in our flesh, we always want to think that this world can somehow satisfy our deepest longings. And, uh, you know, maybe it does for a second or two, but it never lasts. It just leaves us hungering and thirsting for more. And I think it'd be good to just end with uh, one of my favorite verses. Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And I love that verse. And I, I love the surrounding texts in that one, too. The He's uh, talking to the woman at the well, uh, where he tells her who he is exactly. And uh, it, it's just delightful. So I think that, you know, when you're in the word like that, and, and you read these passages, and you, you're just hit with that beautiful truth of Jesus's love for his sheep, um, that that is so delightful. So um, I, I thank you for that study. Yeah, that that verse and that passage is really, really beautiful. The one that that you just read. And I just again, I'm just I'm overwhelmed by how rich and deep God's actual word is and how cheap, you know, how cheap and how flimsy these twistings are. We have got to be good students of God's word and put our trust into what his word actually says, not what people are twisting it to say to feed our fleshly desires. I hope that's what everybody gets out of this this series that we're doing is that the truth of God's word is so rich and so wonderful. Well, that is going to do it for another episode of A Word Fitly Spoken. Be sure to check out the show notes for some helpful links with uh, with some of the things that we've been talking about. And before we go, we'd like to say a big thank you to our newest patron, Felicia. Thank you for your kindness and generosity, Felicia. Thank you. Yes. And if you'd like to help us defray the costs of podcasting like Felicia did through Patreon or PayPal, just go to a wordfitlyspoken.life and click on the support tab. Your donations keep us on the air and we truly appreciate them. Yes. 
And until next time, read God's Word in context and walk worthy.